You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 11th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, a Brazilian Supreme Court judge orders the arrest of top officials after Sunday's riots in Brasilia. We'll have the latest. Also ahead. I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be talking about Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's tour of Europe and North America and how it's being perceived back at home. More from Fiona a bit later. We'll also get the latest business headlines with our friends at Bloomberg. And we'll turn to Vienna as the Austrian parliament reopens its doors. The Austrian parliament is in full working order, though you can't say the same about Austrian politics. So last night, as journalists gathered to admire the restoration work, the speeches were about the need to bring more transparency to the parliamentary process. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Markus Hippi. We start today's programme in Brazil, where a Supreme Court judge has ordered the arrest of top public officials after rioters stormed key government buildings in Brasilia. The arrests include the capital's most recent public security chief, who served as the Justice Minister under former President Jair Bolsonaro. For more on this, I'm joined by Monaco's senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco and by Antonio Sampaio, an expert on Brazilian politics and security at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Welcome to the programme. Antonio, first, how significant are these arrests? Hello. So these arrests signify the strong, uh, the, the strong fist, the strong hand that the authorities now in Brasilia are handling this case, uh, the seriousness of the, uh, of the investigation, uh, the, the the authorities that were um, uh, ordered to be arrested were uh, quite high up in the, um, in, in, the, in the in the local government. Uh, but more significantly, Anderson Torres was also uh, the Minister of Justice of Bolsonaro's government, so a very senior official under Bolsonaro, um, who later went to be the Secretary of Security for the capital's uh, government. Uh, also, the the governor of uh, Brasilia, uh, Ibanez Rocha, so Anderson Torres's boss, was suspended by the same Supreme Court judge. So there is a strong um, uh, a strong sense that the justice system, uh, the federal police who ordered these arrests uh, or, or requested that the Supreme Court order these arrests are handling the case and they, they have full understanding of the uh, completely unprecedented and serious nature of what happened in Brasilia on Sunday. Tell us more about those accusations. Why were these senior officials arrested? Well, there is uh, the, behind the accusation, the, the, the centerpiece, the core of the, the accusations against them is of um, sort of uh, incompetence or, or that they, they failed to act given the ample evidence that the protesters, the pro-Bolsonaro protesters, uh, were going to commit serious crimes and were going to try to break into Congress. Uh, there is um, significant evidence uh, in video, in audio, of the protesters who were 
headquartered, um, who, who were based for a long time, for weeks since the election, uh, in front of the headquarters of the army in Brasilia, who is, uh, which is located eight kilometers from the um, the presidential palace, the, the the square where the presidential palace and the Congress are, are located, um, and they have uh, um, said explicitly the night before the events that they were going to try to to invade Congress. Uh, also, the fact that the Secretary of Security on the Sonto is one of those uh, um, who, who, who were uh, given the order for arrest. Um, he um, he left the country. He is on holiday in the West. He posted on social media that he is returning to Brasilia to respond, you know, to justice about about this. But um, you know, there's this sense that not enough security was was put in place. Um, there's very uh, clear evidence that few police officers were put uh, on the way between these protesters, these marchers, and um, the the sort of the headquarters of Brazilian democracy. So there's a number of uh, um, of pieces of evidence pointing to significant flaws in the security that were responsibilities of these people. Fernando Augusto Pacheco joins me in the studio. Fernando, how good of a picture do we have now about what happened? How well do we know the course of the events on Sunday? I think we're learning more and more, of course, there's been investigation by authorities and the media as well. So, you know, one of the things that we are learning that this was definitely not a, a spontaneous invasion, as perhaps you might have seen for some people. They, those groups, they, they were very well planned. I mean, they knew exactly what they were doing, although we don't know their end game because clearly they wouldn't be able to do a coup d'etat or something. Even even the people that are supporting Bolsonaro's in the United States at the moment. But it's quite interesting, as Antonio was saying, uh, those people that, that had the order of arrest and some people are arrested already. It's not only that they didn't act. I think there's a suspicion that they even perhaps helped a bit the protesters. I mean, here's, of course, is just a word of mouth here, but, you know, there's been police sharing coconut water with uh, the protesters or taking selfies. So it's, it's quite interesting. Are they also part of, are they supportive of, of those attacks? So I think that's what needs to be investigated, and I think that's what they're doing. Uh, they're investigating, uh, were there any companies behind that were uh, giving money to those groups of protesters as well? So I think the next weeks we're going to find out uh, more and more who are those people as well, not just uh, who are protesting, but the people behind the scene who are uh, financing uh, those events as well. Antonia, what are your thoughts about what Fernando just said? Is there evidence that the officials neglected their duties or would you go as far as to say that they may have encouraged these protests? That is uh, the the centerpiece now of the uh, of the investigations, and it's something that is looming over everything that we we said before. This sense that there was complicity between not only uh, the uh, the authorities, the two authorities that were um, that were that are being arrested, uh, but also uh, with several lower ranking um, rank and file police officers, and even some army officers who were participating uh, in the security of Congress and also who were there participating in the protests themselves. So today, Brazilian um, newspapers and websites are full of videos showing police officers looking um, at the protesters, not doing much, 
taking selfies. Uh, and there is one video that is quite damning that is showing the some of the military police officers in full anti-riot uniform, just looking at the protesters already inside the, the building and sort of uh, just looking and even pointing them towards the interior of the building saying, come in, um, and the protesters seem very friendly to them. So there is this sense of complicity, uh, which is linked to the connection that the Bolsonaro's political movement, the Bolsonarismo, as it, as it is called, with the security forces, because there is this sense of Bolsonaro has always been tough on crime, tough on uh, you know chaos and 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 and, and a, a, a strongman. Uh, this the sense of security and the use of force. Uh, by the police has always been at the corner of Bolsonaro. He's been pro-gun, uh, made several uh, uh, measures uh, for legaliz- uh, liberalization of, of gun possession. So uh, there is a doubt looming over the security forces, especially the lower ranking ones who are known to be, um, uh, many of them, uh, Bolsonaro supporters and their loyalty to the institutions. And this episode in Brasilia has put further further doubts into that, which is very serious for Brazilian democracy. Antonio Fernando also said that these rioters, they seemed to know what they were doing. How well organized were they? What is your impression and what do we know? Did they have an actual plan? And if so, what was it? Well, the um, the plan, it is clear that is it is an organized movement. I think that Brazil, for the first time in its modern democracy, has uh, a problem with an organized extremist movement, in this case, a right-wing, far-right movement. Um, there were uh, now uh, uh, an important part of the investigation now is also related to the financing of these protesters uh, who were camped outside of the army headquarters. Um, the fact that they had food that they have, there were shops selling all sorts of food there. Uh, that many traveled to Brasilia, or almost all of them traveled to Brasilia and to, to the place of the protest in buses that were paid by, by some people. And some of them were already identified. They are mostly small business people who are sympathizers of uh, Bolsonaro and the, 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 the far right. Um, so some of them have already been identified. Um, it is it is now a matter of uh, 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 a crucial security point now for Brazil to identify how serious this threat is, that the threat exists, there's no doubt about it, but how capable are them to continue doing and doing more violent acts, uh, sabotage. And uh, there was also uh, an attempted terrorist attack um, um, in, in December in Brasilia, in which a Bolsonaro supporter from the north uh, assembled um, 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 uh, an improvised explosive device and recognized and admitted to the authorities that he was trying to call attention to the movement and try to make the uh, force the military to to intervene in Brazilian politics and stage a coup or something like that. So it is it is a serious problem of political violence and it is organized. Fernando, how much do we know now about the damage that has been done? so far to the actual buildings and public areas in Brasilia. I mean, as Antonio, I'm sure, would agree with me. I mean, the damage has been incredibly sad for anyone that visited the city and its stunning public buildings. I mean, state of art, I would say. I mean, Marcos, I mean, the damage, it's indescribable here. There's a piece called As Mulatas by one of Brazil's most important painters, Di Cavalcanti. It's worth about 8 million reais, which is about 1.43 million euros. It's been knifed seven times. And there's been talk, our culture minister, Margaret Menezes, says 
you know, they're still not sure how they would restore it. Some pieces they are, you know, it, you can't really restore all of them because there's being furniture by Sergio Rodriguez, mar- masterpieces really, and this will cost quite a lot of money. Uh, you know, uh, some people were even saying, you know, if there would be fines for the protesters, maybe this money could be used as well for the restoration of the city. But the damage has been quite, quite severe as well. It's not only as mulatas. There's a long list. I think they released an inventory and say how much it would cost and what can be done because some 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 work can, can be done. It's, it's, it's not repairable at all. It's incredibly sad. Fernando, just finally, what do you think will happen next? Let's look at what to expect from President. Lula, what does this mean to him? And also, what is ex-president Jair Bolsonaro doing next? Well, let's start with Bolsonaro. He is in uh, Orlando in the United States. I think, you know, he's, he gave an interview to CNN Brazil. He'll be back to Brazil earlier than he thought. Uh, as I said, he did condemn the attacks, perhaps not as strongly as one would like from, uh, you know, from a former world leader. Uh, and, and I think he's a bit scared as well, because he's not a world leader anymore, so he can't stay in the United States for long. He's, he's there only on a tourist visa. Uh, for Lula, what I said is after uh, the invasion, I think he had a strong reaction. And one positive thing for him, actually, in his government, it did create a sense of national unity. He met with the majority of governors of states in the country from left and right. So perhaps in the few weeks we will see the sense of national unity. I mean, it, it needs to last because there are threats of other attacks as well. And, and, and I think they need to kind of up this investigation. Uh, so there'll be lots more on this story, Marcos, in the coming weeks. I bet. Fernando and Antonio, thank you very much. Antonio Sampaio and Monaco's own Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. It's 12.13 here in London. Here is Monaco's Carol Terabello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Sweden is preparing legislation to allow the construction of more nuclear power stations in the country in order to boost electricity production and enhance energy security. Prime Minister Ulf Christensen has made expanding nuclear power generation a key goal for his government. South Korea and the United States have announced they will hold tabletop exercises next month as the Allies move to better counter the North's nuclear threats. It comes after North Korea launched an unprecedented number of missiles last year, including intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of reaching the mainland of the United States. And Greece's last king, Constantine II, has died age 82 in a hospital in Athens. Constantine II ascended to the throne in 1964 before being forced to flee after a military coup three years later. The monarchy was eventually abolished in 1973. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Carlotta. Next, we turn to Japan as Prime Minister Fumio Kishida continues his trip around Europe before heading to the US. Yesterday, he was in Italy and today he's holding talks in London with UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. But how is his tour being perceived back home and what would make this a success? Let's get the latest with Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief Fiona Wilson. Hello, Fiona. Hi, Marcus. Could you first tell us how much press coverage this tour by Kishida is getting where you are? Yeah, I mean, it is getting a lot of press coverage. Um, Kishida has been, you know, he's been struggling with his ratings here in Japan. I think he's always strong on diplomatic issues. He's good on overseas travel. You know, he was a very long serving foreign minister. So this is really where he's at. He's very comfortable, um, gets him out of uh, domestic politics for a while. And, you know, it's a big tour. It's, 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 you know, five countries, 
He's laying the groundwork for the, the G7 meeting that Japan is hosting in May in Hiroshima, which is which is his home constituency, actually. That's the, that's the area he represents. So he's laying the groundwork for that. And he's really shining a spotlight on, on East Asian security issues and, and trying his best to um, tie them into what's going on in Europe at the moment. Fiona, as you said already, it's been a rocky ride for this prime minister. His popularity has been falling and he's lost a number of his cabinet ministers. Do you think this tour could actually boost his popularity domestically? Yeah, definitely. I think it's always good, you know, for a Japanese prime minister to be seen, you know, coming off the onto the tarmac, you know, being greeted by whether it's Emmanuel Macron, whether it's Rishi Sunak or Joe Biden, as it will be at the end of the week. So, you know, this is a this is a really big hitting tour. And I think you know, it's also reminding people that Japan is hosting the G7, which I think may not not have been obvious to many people. It's had seemed fairly low profile. But also, you know, it really underlines what Kishida is trying to do, which is to get Japan into the center of global diplomacy, make it an important player. I mean, Japan's the only Asian member of the G7. So it's very important the issues that affect this part of the world are being discussed in Europe and America as well. Do you think there's something the Japanese public would like to see happen during this tour? Yeah, I think, you know, it is interesting, this this big uh, defence pact, which, um, you know, we know will be signed um, with the UK and Rishi Sunak's already, we've heard the statement about that already. You know, it's, it's a really big defence pact. I mean, there's been nothing like that between these two countries for more than a century you know, it will allow troops to be deployed in each other's soil. It just shows that generally, particularly Europe, I mean, the US has, has long had a tilt towards Asia, but Europe is really looking at the Indo-Pacific, at Asia. And and really what this is all about, although Rishi Sunak's statement didn't say it explicitly, it's about China. What is China getting up to? It's increasingly assertive. What are the plans for Taiwan? It's really preparing honestly, for the for the, the invasion of Taiwan, how will the rest of the world react? And I think what Kishido is saying is, look at Ukraine and Russia, let that be your example. How you responded to that could shape how you respond to a Taiwan-China crisis and, and, and whether you, you make it a big deterrent. What can we do to stop China um, invading Taiwan? Indeed, Kishida and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak will sign a defence agreement a bit later today. That agreement will allow the countries to deploy forces on each other's soils. soil. Um, h- how is that being perceived in Japan? You make it sound like everyone is supporting the idea, but is there any controversy? Um, no, no, it's not really controversial. I think, you know, the bigger picture in Japan is that Japan f- is finding itself in a very tight spot on the security front. I mean, you know, but you've got Russia at, at one point, you've got China as well. And I think there's a feeling that you've got North Korea firing missiles um, with increasing regularity. Japan is in a difficult position. And I think what, what Kishida has talked about is this panoramic diplomacy, or he's talking about realism diplomacy for a new era, you know, really reaching out all over the world to get partners for Japan in what is really becoming, you know, these are global issues, whether it's China, whether it's North Korea or Russia, this is affecting everyone. So I think one of the big topics at the G7 will be, there'll be many subjects, but I think also, you know, how what has happened in Russia and Ukraine has affected energy prices, has affected food prices. So I think it's really trying to knit together these regional um, discussions and, and showing that these are these are global problems. Do you think there's some kind of list of priorities when it comes to the Japanese public? I'm wondering, we are talking about defence now, but do people want the prime minister to do something else? For example, something about the economy. A few weeks ago, the inflation hit a 40-year high, for example. Yeah, I mean, no, no question that is a big issue. But I mean, 
there's a lot of discussion about security on this trip, but trade is also being discussed um, absolutely at every point, you know, increased cooperation. And, you know, we're talking about Japan is, is has agreed to do, develop this uh, next generation fighter jet with uh, the UK and Italy, um, you know, usually always goes with the US. And this time they decided to go with two European partners. And, you know, that is also about economic cooperation. You know, this is jobs for companies like Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, these big players um, who, who will be, you know, making this jet. Now, whether they can actually make it, there's a deadline of 2035. And I think certainly the Americans are a little sceptical that, that these, you know, they can produce a jet that will take on uh, what will be a sort of fifth generation Chinese jet by then, whether they can do that is is unclear. But, you know, the economy is always in these discussions. So whether, it, you know, you're talking about cybersecurity, whatever it is, which always comes up, you know, it, it's always about the economy as well. So I think that's at the, the front of all, you know, all our leaders. That's that's what they're talking about as well. So it's a combination of things, um, you know, and, and I've, I've noticed that Kishida is obviously tailoring the conversation depending on where he's going. But he's certainly looking, he'll be looking, say, to Joe Biden, you know, looking to him to shore up all the security issues, particularly really talking about the importance of the Japan-US alliance. That That's really got to be unwavering and it's very important. Just finally, Fiona, as you mentioned, the G7 summit will take place in Japan in May. What kind of an opportunity is this for Japan and Prime Minister Fumia Kishida to, to represent the country to the world a bit differently? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a massive opportunity. And I think for him personally, it's a huge thing because it's in Hiroshima, his constituency. So, yeah, we're expecting all the talk about security, all these regional security issues, trade as well. But I think, uh, you know, Kishida will no doubt make a pitch talking about a nuclear free world, which is a big subject of his. You know, everyone knows that Hiroshima was struck by a, uh, an atomic bomb at the end of the war. And, and it's, it's a big subject in Hiroshima, you know, where he's from, where he's representing. And I think that will be a topic. You know, if he could make any breakthrough on that, um, that would that would be massive. And, you know, all these these high profile diplomatic meetings um, are, are, you know, warmly greeted in Japan and are very, very high profile. Monocle's Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Thank you very much. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Since the historic parliament building in Vienna closed down for much-needed repairs in the summer of 2017, Austria has suffered one political crisis after another as chancellors came and went and governments collapsed. Will this change now that the seat of Austrian democracy is restored? Monaco's correspondent in Vienna, Alexei Korolev, brings us this report. You can, at this building, see the developing of structural engineering. It was very interesting. It was uh, looking back how people worked in ancient time. <laughs> <laughs> ancient. <laughs> it's taken more than five years and an impressive feat of engineering. As Ortfried Friedreich, managing partner of engineering firm Axis, explains. Everything was yellow there. Mm-hmm. We broke down. Wow. It was a old construction in the end of the 19th century with the materials they had at this time. The building is the same as it was before renovation, but we made 10,000 square meter more area for people, for better usage. 
Built in the 1880s in a lavish Greek style by Danish architect Theophil von Hansen, the building suffered heavy damage in the Second World War and some serious neglect in the decades after. So much so, the MPs even had to pass a special law to exempt their workplace from standard safety regulations so that the fire department couldn't evict them on hazard grounds. Now the Austrian parliament is in full working order again. But you can't say the same about Austrian politics. A study published in November said that only a third of Austrians trusted their political institutions, compared to over 60% in 2018. Architektur, Kunst prägt auch das gegenseitige Miteinander. Und ein unverzichtbarer Bestandteil unserer Arbeit ist die Medien, die hier vertreten sind, die uns begleiten. So last night as journalists gathered to admire the restoration work, at some point weirdly to the accompaniment of a pianist, the speeches were all about the need to bring more transparency to the parliamentary process. In that spirit, the building is now open to the public. There's also a restaurant, an observation deck above the main chamber called Democracy Workshop, and some 1.8 million euros worth of art by contemporary Austrian artists. Yeah, so my installation here besteht aus 60 Metallseilen. Martina Steckholzer is one of them. Her contribution is a web of metal wires installed in one of the staircases. Im Englischen haben wir es jetzt genannt String Figures, dazu nachher mehr. Und so habe ich in die jeweils in die the Austrian state spent over 400 million euros on this renovation project. But was it worth it? And will it become a template for other aging public buildings? A last word to Ortfried Friedreich at the Austrian engineering firm that carried out the works. This question is very, very difficult to answer because if it would be a new building, it would be cheaper. But what should we do with this, this old building? Then you only have a museum. The main target was to use this building for the original purpose, but open it for the public and have a transparent democracy. And that's the reason you have to renovate it. And hopefully we made it good. And hopefully most people are thinking, oh, that's was a good solution. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Thanks to Alexei, you are with The Briefing. And finally today, it's time to talk business with Ewan Potts from Bloomberg. Good afternoon, Ewan. We have some good news on inflation expectations. Tell us more. Marcus, yeah, tomorrow we're looking out for the world's most closely watched economic piece of data, the uh, CPI reading the inflation number for the United States. Now, we'll get the reading for the year to December. Uh, we're expecting it to come in at 6.5%. This could be a third straight month of good news on the inflation front. The uh, latest reading, the reading a month ago, was 7.1%. And in fact, uh, Bloomberg Economics it actually expects outright deflation in the headline measure for the month, which means that over the month of December, overall U.S. consumer prices perhaps actually decreased only by a tiny amount. And well, that will help to bring down uh, the annual measure. 
uh, and uh, means that uh, a number of factors uh, feeding into this uh, Japan-driven slump in commodity prices uh, is part of the story. And also easing supply constraints. Those supply constraints were built up over COVID uh, have been gradually easing over the course of the last 12 months. Uh, and discounts to clear excess inventories. A lot of companies built up too much stock uh, and they're trying to shift that. So this is all good news in the Fed's inflation fight. Bloomberg Economics reckons that the Fed will raise rates by a quarter basis, quarter of a percentage point at each of its next two meetings and then probably hold them at that 5% level for the remainder of the year. A little bit uh, closer to home, uh, there's a survey on inflation expectations in the euro area. Also some good news on the ECB, good news for the ECB on this and this uh, shows surprisingly that uh, consumers in most big European economies uh, uh, now worry about inflation over the next year uh, uh, much uh, less than you would expect and in fact their inflation uh, uh, expectations for the coming year are actually close to or below the average uh, over the course of the euro over the last uh, 20 uh, years or so. might uh, surprise you to hear that. Inflation expectations, very important uh, for central banks. It's something that they monitor uh, very closely because, of course, if people expect inflation to be high, then they demand uh, big pay rises from their employers and that feeds into the whole process, making it a lot worse. So inflation expectations, very important, and they seem to be coming down across many of the biggest economies in Europe. You and you also have news about Apple. There's been another move by the company to bring more components in-house. What does that mean in practice? Yeah, Marcus, a uh, Bloomberg scoop on the world's most uh, valuable company. Apple is planning to start using its own custom displays in mobile devices as early as next year. It's going to swap out the display in the uh, top-end Apple Watch. That's going to be the first one they move uh, by the end of next year, according to our sources. Now, this is uh, important news for Samsung, which is a very, very important uh, maker of display. They make they make the many of the displays for Apple products, and they're, in fact, the world's most advanced manufacturer of displays. The massive Korean company. It has uh, a lot of other parts to it as well, but Apple is a very important customer uh, for Samsung. As you can imagine, uh, Apple buys a lot of uh, products from a lot of companies around the world and it has been increasing its efforts uh, to move that supply uh, elsewhere and to uh, bring things in-house to design and to produce uh, things in-house uh, to get more control over the design process and the capability of its products. We've already heard that they're dropping Intel chips from their Mac computers and yesterday another Bloomberg scoop that uh, the company is going to replace the chips inside its devices, uh, including dropping a key Broadcom chip, big US chip maker, uh, as soon as 2025. So Apple really bringing a lot of stuff back in-house. Thank you for this update. Bloomberg's UN Pots there. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carla Torebello. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. That is at 2000 in Hong Kong, midday here in London and 7am in Washington DC. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.